Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening, we hope that you'll be encouraged, challenged, and that you might hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. At the moment, we're in a series called Liberating Revelation, and it's been quite awesome. But if you've got some bigger questions about it, I recommend you check out our most recent Pondering episode, where Hannah chatted to Mike about some big questions they had while shaping the series. Hey, I'm Greg. If I haven't met you before, welcome. It's great to have you here tonight, and I'll try and do as well as I did this morning. I'll try my hardest. We're um, deep in this series on liberating revelation. So if you haven't been here before, um, this might be a tough entry point. I'm going to do my best to bring you on the journey as a standalone um, sermon today. But if you're interested in revelation, I'd really encourage you to check out the ones that have been. So we've got YouTube videos, we're on um, Spotify, and there is even a podcast about ponderings on Revelation as well that you can check out through the Good Life community. Um, There's been a great um, series, and we've got one more final week next week where Michael wrap it all up before our Thanksgiving series, so it's seven in total. And we've given it this title, Liberating Revelation, because I'm not sure about you um, and your what your experience of Revelation has been, but mine was um, different to how we're approaching it now. And it's been really liberating for me more recently, rereading Revelation. I think growing up, I grew up and um, I still remember in my Sunday school, we used to sing this song called The Countdown, 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and 5 and 4, call upon the Saviour while you may, 3 and 2, coming through the clouds in bright array, the countdown's getting lower every day. So that was our song and I used to love it. I love I sung the loudest. I was the worst voice. I think Hannah can attest to that. I'm up here and I'm just yell singing at her every week. Um, and I used to love that song. I used to sing my heart out. But then as I grew older, became a teenager and adolescent, I found um, this idea of revelation pretty scary. And to be honest, I've mostly avoided it for my Christian life. I didn't know how to reconcile it with how I saw God, that view of God and some of the images we see in, the, in Revelation. So I, I just pretended it wasn't there, to be honest. And more recently, um, I've started to, I guess my view on God has, has shifted. And, and as we approach Revelation in this series, it has been liberating. And I hope you find that so. But also I want to acknowledge that, um, yeah, this brings out a lot of emotions for different people. And you might be a different place on this journey and might have different opinions on Revelation, and that's totally fine. I'm not saying I have the keys of wisdom that no one else has, but that's, we're speaking from our belief, my belief. That's all I can speak to. And um, how I've done research in this over the last couple of weeks in particular, deep dives into different scholars and things, and that's how I'm presenting. But if this brings up anything for you and you'd like to meet up and talk further in the week or something, have a coffee together, we'd be more than happy to. And if you don't see this the same as me, you are still most welcome in this community. I just want to be really clear about that. We're a warm and welcoming community and all are welcome. So let's jump in. I want to do a bit of a review in case you haven't been here um, and heard the other ones. And even if you have, it's a pretty dense book, Revelation. There is a lot in it. And I really struggled to even narrow down my one um, topic tonight. But I just want to, um, we've been talking about how you engage with Revelation really reveals a lot about the deeper faith that you have and how you express that. If, If you have this view of Revelation where you're waiting to escape, I think it takes a lot of onus off this creation we live in 
If we go right back to the original, God says he created this earth and he said, this is good. God declared this earth good and he declared us as caretakers for it. So to think that we're just going to escape in this world, we're going to leave this world to self-destruct, I think takes some onus off what God actually placed on us from the very beginning and the value he placed on the earth and all people. And I think that's what we're talking about when we say liberating revelation, that we've got to hold that tension of actually God's called us to be caretakers and we are to be ambassadors of his kingdom here on earth. So how do we hold those two? Well, I want to take you through some of the topics that have been. Uh, Chapter one, John has a vision from Christ. So this is looking at a quick overview of Revelation to try and help you get up to speed with where we are today and what I'm going to be talking about. Chapters two and three, the seven churches, and it's a challenge and encouragement. And Hannah did an amazing job unpacking that. Chapters four and five, we have the vision of the throne room and central picture of what Christ is like, the Lamb. Six to 20, the judgment, God dealing with evil empire. And Mike spoke to that in particular last week. And then tonight, we're on the final two chapters of Revelation. Vision of hope, restoration, and the new creation. And Mike, as he went on holidays, handed this to me and said, Greg, this is the easy one. You're welcome. And I'm not so sure, but anyway, I'll take, take his word for it, right? He's a pastor. All right, he can't lie. So what we've been talking about, what Revelation is. <laughs> Everyone looked nervous when I said that. It was a joke. All right, but no, I don't know. All right, I'm confused. <laughs> Mike, if you're watching this, I'm sorry, you're a saint. All right. Uh, next one, Emily. What Revelation is. So what we've been discussing, this book of Revelation we're looking at um, is a jolting letter. It's provocative. Okay, it was circulated through these seven churches, which, which Hannah in particular focused on, who they were and why. Um, and it's calling them to align with God's purpose and plan and to flee from the destructive lives of empire and the world around them. And I think it's true for us today, right? It is about faithful endurance, living lives that refresh and heal. And I think that was a great verse that Hannah unpacked when it talked about, I don't know if you've heard about that Bible verse, some of you might have heard where God spits the lukewarm water out of his mouth and Hannah did a beautiful job of bringing some deep context to that. I really encourage you to listen to that. And it's about hope for a world that is on the path to self-destruction. I think that's key, it's hope. Okay, it's not this scary, it's offering them hope. And the big question Revelation asks us as we read through it is will Jesus' followers faithfully endure? Will we, as Jesus' followers today, and as we read it, are we going to faithfully endure? This is a question that we're confronted with. The threat of Babylon, the threat of empire, the world we live in. Are we going to faithfully endure this society we exist in and inherit the renewed world God is creating? So that's got to be our question we're thinking of as we read through this book. It's not, Revelation is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. That's not what it is. It's been used to, as that, it's been weaponized, but it's not that. It actually uses symbols from the Hebrew scripture that mean things to the readers, particularly them. John was a master at that. He knew the Bible far better than we do in this modern context, sadly. And so did his, his leader, uh, the readers he was talking to. They were very well versed. And they were full of, fully related to the images that he's using. 
So I want to give you an example, and I want to introduce you to my children. I'm a dad of two, and I have a beautiful daughter. I love this daughter. She's got bright red hair, and I think I've got a photo of her. Yeah, next one, Emily. Whatever it is, just press next one. That's her. And that's the pause. Emily's like, I don't see it. No, that's her. My daughter, this beautiful little redhead, is a tornado. She's wild and destructive. She unleashes on our household. She leaves trails of food, scraps, clothing, everywhere. You know, homework books, school bags. It's just like destruction wherever she goes. And you can hear her coming. She's like a roar as she proceeds through the house, right? And I've also got a son. My oldest son, he's pretty big. He's almost, well, he's actually just, we stood back to back and I think he's overtaken me. And I've always said to him, there it is, she jumped the gun. He is a bottomless pit that we just pretty much just are throwing food into. He eats dinner and then I'm like, that's my leftovers for tomorrow. No, there you go. Eat my lunch, good. And dessert, all right, sure. Okay, and yep, the snacks, that's your lunch tomorrow, good. All right, we need groceries again. Yep, he's this bottomless pit into which we just you know, throw food, never-ending. Can anyone relate to either of these images? Do you know what I'm talking about? Especially, I think, parents probably could, but people here, are you, are you an Audrey? Do I have any Audreys here that leave just destruction in their wake? Thank you. Self-awareness is, is a key. It's a beautiful gift in life, guys. So, What about a bottomless pit? Have we got anyone here who just consumes? Jake, yes, I've seen, I've witnessed that. Thank you. Thank you. But you see, these, these metaphors I share with you, there's truth to them, but there's also, they're just metaphors. My kids are so much more than that. And that paints a pretty clear picture, I guess, especially to other parents here. They'd be like, oh yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I see what you're getting at here. I can visualize that. They're not literally, like obviously, these are humans I'm talking about. Okay? They've got way more depth to them. And I think we've got to remember that as we jump into this book of Revelation. It's full of metaphor. Let's have a look at the next slide. Here's some of just the images we see in Revelation. We see Jesus with a sword tongue. We see lambs with seven eyes. We see scrolls with seven seals and all these things. And then we take them and go, oh yeah, of course, that's metaphor. But the burning lake, oh, that's real. Oh, and this We can't jump between. We've got to remember that Revelation is full of metaphor. And as we read it, we don't get to pick and choose what's literal and what's metaphor. It's all metaphor. But what it's alluding to is this bigger story. There's a bigger truth behind it. And also, there's limitations to these metaphors. John's using them to help translate complex ideas Okay, this is complex ideas. And I think the finer details are kind of not super important. It's the biggest story that actually is the invitation of Revelation. Are you with me? Yeah. I want to read this, this quote from Scott McKnight. He says, um, The book of Revelation is not about finding joy in unbelievers getting their punishment, but it's actually about the defeat of the dragon and the systematic evils in Babylon. The celebration is not personal vengeance. It's not about us and how people have wronged us, but it's about cosmic justice. 
It's a colossal cosmic relief for the dragon. And if you've been here other weeks, dragon symbolizes the devil and evil where he's defeated so that the splendor can all go to the lamb and the one on the throne. And if you've been here in other weeks, the lamb is the picture of Jesus. So that's where we're up to tonight. That was my introduction. Tonight, we're jumping into chapters 21 and 22 at the end of Revelation, and we're looking at this this new city, new Jerusalem at the end, the hope of new creation, the end times, as some would say. And just to confuse you, I'm using a literal image of a city. You're welcome, but remember, it's metaphor. So let's jump in. Now, that's where I actually started. When I was reading this and preparing for this message, that was my first question. It's like, why is there a city? Why the new Jerusalem as this final creation, this picture? Maybe not surprising for that it's Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the Bible and the Israelites, that's their city. Okay, they're full. The story of the Bible through the Old Testament is about the Jewish people, and this is their country. So that kind of makes sense on that level, but I was kind of unsure why. I see other symbols in the Bible, and I, I tried to reconcile that. So I went digging, and I came across this, this theme of temples in the Bible, both literal, physical temples that you can see, but also this theological idea. And I want to unpack that with you. And for that, we actually have to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the original creation. But before we jump there, I want to introduce you to, let's, summer, let's revise what a temple is. A temple is the intersection of heaven and earth, where the two meet. Often beautiful buildings historically. Um, they were limited access to priests and important people, and they would represent average plebs like you and I. They're often guarded. And two interesting things to note about temples. Temples contain a symbol of the God they were worshipping. Every temple contains a symbol to represent who that temple is in honour of. And there's this constant significance of seven days I came across. And that's within the Israelite, um, ancient Israelite world, but also more broadly, there's evidence of the significance of seven days which is important. In Leviticus, for the Israelites, they have a seven-day ceremony to dedicate the sacred tabernacle in the wilderness. In 1 Kings, Solomon, the king at the time, dedicates a temple in Jerusalem with two back-to-back seven-day ceremonies in the seventh month of the year. In Ezekiel, the prophet envisaged the new temple in Jerusalem foresees a seven-day ritual. So it's full of this number seven, and that was significant in that time, in that ancient world. So let's go back to creation and let's read of the last day of creation. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, it says, So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And here, we're introduced to this idea of a temple, the garden temple. Here we see that significance again of the seven days of creation, okay? A clear reference link to this recognition in that ancient world that seven days was this significant number that surrounded temples and consecration. 
And we see this perfect overlap, this perfect harmony between heaven and earth represented by these concentric circles that overlap. And I've stolen some imagery. If you've seen it before, it's from the Bible Project. Um, they have some amazing resources that I've drawn heavily on and I'd recommend if, if you're really interested, um, you can go in there. They're all free and available online. But you can see that image represents this perfect overlap, this harmony between heaven and earth. And we hear in this story that seven times God provides things for human flourishing and seven times he declares it's good. God dwells in this garden with humans. This is the whole world for them at the time. So you can see this perfect overlap, this full access between humans and God. And if we jump back earlier in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, humans are the image bearers of God. So we can see this image of the God in the garden temple. You following? The imagery here. We are the living, breathing image of God put in the temple. God's representation. But sadly, um, as you probably know, this story had a, a twist for the worse. And this heaven-earth reality didn't last very long. And that's represented here by these, this next image where heaven and earth is separated. We don't have this access. Adam and Eve were cast out of, out of the garden and out of that direct access with God. This heaven and earth reality was broken. And if you keep reading, you read about this, well, if you're reading about the, this event, the fall of Adam and Eve, um, there's this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I guess for me, when I first read about that, I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. Isn't that something we um, should, that sounds like a gift of God, right? But actually, if you understand it, um, and we just read through the last of the creation story, we hear that God is defining what's good. God's saying, this is good. He creates these things for humans and declares, that's good. That's good. That's good. And then in taking that fruit, it's representing the, the fact that we're saying, we're not trusting you, God, to define what's good and evil. We're going to do that ourselves. And rather than be bearers of God, the image bearers of God, we're actually saying, we are gods. We're in control to make these decisions for ourselves. And that's what led to this separation. This separation from this holy, perfect God came about. So if we keep reading... I'm trying to cover a lot of ground with you tonight, but it's important. You'll see where we land at the end. It's a bit of a summary of, of, of the Bible. We jump a bit further forward in the story and we come across what's called the tabernacle. Now, this was a, a gift given to the Israelite people as they fled Egypt. So if you're familiar with the story of um, that, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and they were sent into the desert and they're fleeing, and God has this compromise with them, this temporary meeting point where they can actually experience his presence again. And as they journeyed, he um, yeah, gives this vision to them. So apart from some small dreams and these sporadic little parts over long, great amounts of time, they didn't have access to God anymore. So this is given, and they set up this tabernacle, which is like a tent temple. Okay, so it's a temporary temple that's moved around. And again, it's more like other temples of the world where only a select few have access to the area and access to God on behalf of all the other people. But if you 
know the story of the Israelites well and God's promise to Abraham, he says that through you, the whole world will be blessed. So we've got to see this as a temporary solution. And we see that again when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, the original temple. Again, it's a temporary solution to this bigger problem. And this access is still very restricted. Then we fast forward again to the life of Jesus, probably someone you've heard about, pretty significant in the story of the Bible. And we hear, I want to pick up where he's making a pretty outrageous statement to some of the priests of the temple. And he says in John 2 verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He also says, he makes many references and I've picked a couple. He says, I and the Father are one in John 10. In Colossians 2, he says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So here Jesus is claiming, I'm the temple. We see God dwelling in him. So he had the garden where heaven and earth met perfectly and God dwelt there and people as the image bearer. We had the tabernacle. And I forgot to mention the tabernacle was full of garden imagery. And now we have Jesus saying, I'm the temple. God dwells in me on earth and I have access to God. Jesus is not talking about the physical building, but this idea, this theological idea that God is with us. And N.T. Wright talks about this. He says, The life, death, burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus launched the new creation. And while the old creation is marked by sin and death, the new creation is marked by righteousness and eternal life. Jesus' kingdom had come on earth and points to this new Jerusalem that's coming where earth and heaven would be fully reunited again. And here's this image that something shifted. New creation had begun with Jesus. Now we're going to jump back all the way back to where we started, Revelation. And again, I want to look at this this city of Jerusalem. And as we read it, I want you to look for some of these symbols that we've found throughout about temples. So let's have a read in the first, um, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I'll be their God, and they will be my children. And there's much more, but I want to unpack this a little bit. Here we see the coming together once more of heaven and earth in this new Jerusalem, this new city, 
We had that perfect harmony in the beginning. We had the separation. And now Jesus, God, is going to restore all things in this new creation, in this new city. Firstly, I want to acknowledge a paradox. And if you're listening carefully or if you've read it before, you might have noticed it. See, in verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then later in verse 5, it says, I'm making all things new. Now, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project um, suggests that we look at this in the context of Jesus for an answer. And he says the resurrected Jesus was physically the same. He ate, drank food. He had the scars on his hands and feet and side that he asked Thomas to check and see. But he was very different. He was not recognisable to many of the disciples he encountered. He appeared and disappeared from different rooms. So I think as we look at this renewal of the earth, it's a bit like the resurrection, not replacement. Our new creation will be much like the current world that we're in, but also so, so different. We saw in, we just read in chapter 21 verse 4, it says, in this new creation, there's no more death. There's no more crying, no more sorrow, no more, no more pain. So it's the same, but so different. If we read on, keep reading through here, we see lots of this garden imagery coming out. Imagery of a river and a tree of life. And we read description of this, this city that only makes sense on a symbolic level. It, does, it doesn't make sense to actually construct this literally. First of all, it's described as a cube, a cube city. And this is actually a reference back to Solomon's temple he built in Jerusalem. If you read there, he, he was given these in, distinct instructions for the holiest of holy. And that was God's dwelling place in the original temple, was the shape of a cube. So it's a reference back to that. It's a metaphor for this is God's city. This is where God dwells. If you keep reading, it talks about the new Jerusalem is without a temple, in fact, because like the garden, like the original creation, access to God will be opened up to all, not restricted. All are welcome. Interestingly, if you read the dimensions of this gigantic cube city, it doesn't match the temple of ancient Jerusalem. It actually very closely represents the dimensions of ancient Rome. Again, this more symbolism that this empire, this city of God, is going to replace the empires of the earth. It's going to usurp them. It's this rich symbolism. Another clue that this um, new creation is different talks about there's no need of the sun and the moon because God and the lamb will be the light. Goes on to talk, and this is one of my favorite images, it talks about the gates of this city will never be shut. Now, if you look in the ancient context, city walls and gates were pretty important. They were to keep people out and protect the people in there. Okay, very much that us versus them. And this city, it talks about they'll never be shut. And we read in Isaiah chapter 60 and later in chapter 21 of Revelation, we hear about kings, kings of other nations coming and submitting to God's authority, bringing honor to him. And if you think about a king and the other nations, they represent other empires. And here we see this grace of God in welcoming them in. And they come and they submit and they bow down and they worship God. 
It's about the restoration of all things. In chapter 21, verse 2, I want to have a quick look at it specifically. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, I admit when I saw this, I was like, perfect. I'm always looking for a story opportunity, right, when I speak. I was like, this is perfect. I'm married. This is going to be awesome. I've got a beautiful bride. I might even get a photo. But the more I looked at this, you'd look at the ancient context of the story and marriage. I'm not talking no Barbie movie, guys. This is deep, deep patriarchy. And in this context, women are considered the property of the, of the groom, and they would actually be purchased. And while maybe not a great image of modern-day relationships and marriage, quite beautiful in this context, if you think about Jesus being the, the bridegroom here, and he's waiting, he's paid for with his death, he's defeated Hades, he's defeated sin, he's paid the cost to restore earth and heaven again. And he looks on this and he takes ownership of the earth again. He's paid the price of it. And this is all really exciting. I get so excited and lots of people do when they think about this vision of of what the world will be like. This world free of sorrow and sickness and pain and when everyone aligns with, I guess, what a lot of us think, giving honour and glory to God. We get excited about that, but we still live here and now. We're in this current reality. We live between these two. So earlier we looked at Jesus and this coming of God's kingdom, but not fully. And I've got a slide for it. Jesus' kingdom has come now, but not yet fully. So right now we're living... Oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. We're in that tension now. So what's that mean for us? There's lots of, Jesus speaks, spoke to this a lot, but I wanna just give one example as we look at the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He's saying to them literally, pray like this. And while I looked at the ancient Greek, the original Greek it was written in, and I couldn't see it, there was no overall context of when this, any clues there to when this kingdom's coming, but we look at the overall picture of this, this prayer, it's in the current context. It's about the here and now. Pray like this. Your kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven and as it will eventually be. And that brings me to this idea of our final temple I'm going to talk about tonight. And let's have a look at Acts chapter 2 together now. And it says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. You're seeing the clues to the temple, temple being the dwelling place where heaven and earth meet, where God dwells. Let's jump to another example in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22. It says, so now you Gentiles, that's us, right? 
are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. We are the temple. God lives in us. Heaven and earth is through us, in us. Jesus' kingdom has come, but not yet fully. That's our reality we live in. And I think that's the tension. And I don't know about you, but I know that I can easily step back into that world and believe in the empire that we live in. Black Friday sales are coming up and I can start to get obsessed with them. Uni exams are happening right now for me and so many others and I start to believe that my value and my worth tied up in how well I do. And I can easily start to buy into that, into the lies of what this empire sees as valuable and what it sees as important and success. And then I'm so thankful for communities like this that keep reminding me that that's not how I should be living, that God calls me to live differently, to be an ambassador of Christ and of love. Scott McKnight says, representing the Lamb, the seven churches of John's time were called to embody the future realities of the new Jerusalem as faithful witnesses in the presence of Babylon. So here we are, we are citizens of heaven. In Philippians 3 verse 20, it says that, and our role here and now is to be discerning, to determine what's good and loving and pure and kind and just, to stay faithful to God and Jesus and his call in our life to bring heaven and earth, heaven to earth right now, to be witnesses, to spread that to others. Dr. M. Spiegel has this great quote I want to wrap this up with. And he says, the question should never be, is this action leftist or right-wing? Is it liberal or conservative, socialist or capitalist? The question should be, does this action love my neighbour? Does it look out for their interests more than my own? Does it manifest the fruit of the Spirit? So as citizens of heaven, we're called to something bigger, something beyond the empires of this world that we so often get caught up into and which group are you in? Which group are you not in? Who do you agree with? We actually should be thinking above and beyond that to this law of love. And I think if we lived our lives every day asking that question, it's a pretty confronting question. This world would be a different place that heaven and earth reality would be occurring more often. And I think that's God's vision for us here and now. And his promise in the end is that he'll remove evil and restore all things. And heaven and earth will be reunited, reunited. And I'm excited for that day. But that's not 
Revelation doesn't want us to live in a countdown mindset. It's actually about bringing God's kingdom here and now while we have that hope of this future. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our ongoing conversation where we're delving deeper and asking questions about what we're talking about on Sundays, be sure to check out the Pondering episodes in the same feed. Otherwise, we would love it if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au, or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace. Peace.